Welcome to Geared for Growth. This week we're chatting with Drew Evans, who's one of the founders of Kai Fu Property. The theme for the interview really today is instant equity, and we chat to Drew about how he helps property investors generate instant equity through small development projects. We have a chat to him about de-risking construction contracts with builders and how he secures land under market value and generates that instant equity, and the value of pooling the resources of his investors group and the volume to be able to secure deals that are difficult for the average investor to look at. It's a fantastic and illuminating interview with a lot of gold. I'm pretty sure you'll enjoy this one. Here's Drew. Drew Evans, thank you for joining me on Geared for Growth. Hi, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me, mate. Appreciate it beautiful. I've been looking forward to getting you on, Drew. Now, for people who haven't heard of you, uh, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, sure, mate. Uh, so, my name's Drew. I uh, run and operate a business called Kaifu Property. and uh, My business uh, specializes in helping people generate as much uh, instant equity and positive cash flow as quickly as we can. Uh, the investment philosophy, I guess, is all about buying and investing wholesale um, as opposed to your typical retail investment approach, uh, where essentially you, you buy a property and you hope like hell uh, that it goes up over time. So, yeah, yeah, it's a bit about me, mate. When you say instant equity and, and positive cash flow, these are, these are really sort of, I guess, the, the key things that investors are looking for at, at the moment. There's plenty of opportunities there, but um, we're, I'm looking forward to actually taking it in a slightly different direction than what people are used to when we sort of dive into this wholesale stuff. But um, we'll put that on ice for now because we, we need to know what uh, posters were on your bedroom wall as a youngster. <laughs> but I don't know if you actually want to know what posters were on my wall when I was a youngster. <laughs> but um, mate, I guess no posts on my wall. Typical bloke. I, I made really into sort of cars and boats and houses. So I'd say all of the stuff that were on my wall was pretty super, uh, not superficial, but uh, you know, very materialistic stuff were posters on my wall. Well, I mean, that's 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 cliched teenager, isn't it? So we'll we'll, we'll cut you some slack. <laughs> Now, Drew, what about property? How, how did you first get involved in property and what was your first investment? Yeah, good question, mate. I, I actually got into property by default, to be honest, Mike. Um, you know, when I was in high school, I've always been into sort of uh, personal development and growth and, and went to a lot of seminars um, and, and a lot of boot camps and things like that. Uh, finished, finished high school, uh, mate, went traveling, ran out of money, went traveling, ran out of money. Um, and essentially, I got into property by default. I actually started working for... Uh, uh, Newcastle's biggest house and land developer at the time. Uh, you know, they were developing something like 700 homes. And um, so I got into it by default. Um, you know, I, I started off with financial planning uh, with the NAB. Um, and as much as I loved, you know, helping clients and generating wealth and, and learning that, working for a big bank just wasn't me. And um, so I ended up working for this uh, big developer. Now, through that process, I guess I, I sort of learned the ropes and of what to do and what not to do. Um, and as I got to understand exactly how things were working within that institution, I sort of, you know, there's a few things that were getting done that didn't really sit well with me uh, as far as, uh, you know, the way that they got their clients, how they treated their clients, the types of real estate that they were investing in. Um, but that was that was my appetite into the, uh, into the industry, was working for uh, a big house and land developer. Good background, of course, especially with what you do at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> background and what not to do, I guess. But um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> mate, essentially, my first uh, investment property was actually purchased through that company. Um, so, uh, I guess you could call me a little bit young and naive at the time, uh, but you know, sort of listen to, I guess you'd call my mentor at the time, which happened to be the business owner and the developer. Uh, unbeknown to me, he probably made an absolute fortune out of my first purchase. Um, uh, but I purchased a property in uh, Lizarote in Niagara Park. Uh, it was a three-bedroom townhouse, but bought it brand new, uh, and I actually moved into it for a period of, I think it was eight months uh, at the end, got the first homeowner's grounds, uh, and then moved out of it and rented it out from there. Interesting. Yeah, okay. And uh, I definitely want to dive into to some of those issues uh, that uh, that people are getting into on these house and land things and, and, and what you guys do differently. But um, just to get a bit of more of a background on yourself, Drew, we, we've got a bit of a tradition on the podcast of hosting people that have either got great hair or great accents. Now, yours is a little bit faint, but I did hear you say Grant before. So, uh, talk to us about that. Where, 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 what's your background? Sure thing, mate. Well, I actually, I grew up in Zimbabwe. Um, I lived, uh, you know, on, on a farm with my family. And uh, I don't know if you know much about Zimbabwe, but unfortunately, my old man got really badly beaten up when I was at boarding school. Um, I was 14, just turned 15 at the time. 
Uh, and long story short, he just said, it's not worth it. You know, you almost sort of uh, almost died. And he said, listen, you're not going back to school. Yeah, pack your bags, you're going to Australia. So uh, mate, we were lucky. We moved, uh, lucky enough for the fact that we had the money to move out. Um, but yeah, Australia has been home ever since 2001. Gosh, yeah. I mean, we. I, I guess um, me growing up in Australia, I'd sort of take it for granted. I think uh, my, the, the closest my father got to danger was missing his shout at the local pub. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that gives you a real appreciation for, for what happens overseas and how lucky we are. What about, um, what about property? At, at what point did you sort of get bitten by the wealth creation bug? You mentioned you were a seminar junkie, which is a, a fairly common thing, I think, for people that get into the property industry. But could you sort of pin down that point where you actually were interested in, in building your wealth and, and, and did, did property sort of meet you at that same point? Probably didn't actually, mate. I started, uh, I remember the first $5,000 that I saved, I actually invested in somebody else's course, um, you know, to get educated and learn about generating the right mindset and, and, and that kind of thing. But where property really got me was when I was at university, actually. Um, you know, my parents were, uh, were lucky enough to invest in a couple of student accommodation houses. Um, and, and what I did is, you know, we'd, we'd buy uh, – we had three of them, uh, but the first one we got in was a four-bedroom house. We actually converted downstairs into three bedrooms, so it turned into a seven-bedroom house. And my job was to obviously rent out the bedrooms per room. Uh, so you can imagine my folks were getting some phenomenal cash flow. The perk for me is that, that I got to live there for free <laughs> and live with all my buddies uh, on the proviso that I obviously looked after the three, the three student accommodation houses. Um, and that's where I, res- I got the boat saying, hey, well, listen, mum and dad aren't really working too hard for this, this cash flow, um, but obviously real estate as a tool is working pretty well. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so, yeah, you, you had a nice little little hustle there, but it taught you some of the fundamentals and it got you the insight into, well, you know, mum and dad are really nailing this, so I've got to get my slice of it. Tell, tell us a little bit about the, the property experience and exposure that you had. You sort of referenced before that, um, you know, you, you were, I guess, a little bit mentored by uh, your boss who maybe sort of fleeced you on a deal that didn't sound from what you were saying too, too sterling. What are, what, what are some of the key things that, that you've learned and, and some of the key traps, uh, certainly in the, in the development and the buying new space that you've come across? Yeah, good question, man. I think this is very important because unfortunately, mate, um, in the industry that I'm in, everybody gets tired of the same brush and, and rightly so because uh, there's a lot of companies and individuals out there simply doing the wrong thing. Uh, and I guess I used to work for some of them. So some some of the tricks and traps is, you know, overpaying for real estate, you know, not getting the uh, the right quality of real estate, um, you know, getting uh, into investing under the wrong pretenses, you know, based on all the benefits without all of the risks. And so I guess I've been around for, for a lot, uh, well, better part of a decade now, seeing the good, the bad, the ugly. Um, and for me, it's really important to understand, well, what are you purchasing and why are you purchasing? Um, is it going to help set you up or is it going to set you back? Right. And that's where I guess understanding some of the basic fundamentals, if you are talking about the, the development space, it's really important. Um, I tell all of my clients, listen, there's a hundred different ways to make money in real estate. There really is. Uh, it just comes down to working out what strategy works for you. Um, you know, for me, I, I guess I'm a really time poor professional. Uh, you know, I spend all day, every day, pretty much on the phone talking to my clients, uh, and I simply don't have the time to go out and you know do renovations and do uh, you know whole other different types of projects. So for me, it's getting the the devil in the detail. Uh, it's being able to lock in uh, development terms on a retail basis to make sure that you protect all of your downside risk, whilst obviously not forgiving too much of the upside. So I guess I could talk hours and hours on, on, on how we do it, but is there anything in particular you wanted me to go through? Look, I, I guess, you know, you mentioned there's a number of different strategies. Your, your, I guess your niche is the new build sort of stuff. I, I'm, I'm interested, my, my ears sort of prick when you talk about the wholesale side of things and, and, and you know, getting things, uh, getting, getting things sort of like your retail development. So can you sort of expand and, and, and how does that work and can individuals do it or do you need the connections and the volume to be able to put these deals together? Yeah, great question. So, mate, essentially, it's, it's no secret, right? In real estate, um, there's margin everywhere. You know, if you purchase an existing property, you know, you may be purchasing somebody else's capital growth. You've got to pay an agent. You've got to pay, you know, a whole bunch of different trades. So, for me, the, the strategy that I love is basically trying to keep as much of that margin as possible for yourself. Now, to answer your question, um, how do we generate the economies of scale? Uh, the business that I built really has created this win-win scenario whereby uh, essentially all of my clients have to qualify to work with us. Um, if, what I mean by that is if you don't qualify and if you can't take advantage of the opportunities that we have, 
and I can't add substantial value to your personal circumstances, uh, we, don't, we don't accept you into our business. You know, it's a waste of money for our clients and potentially a waste of time for the both of us. So if you take a business approach to that and you imagine that every client that comes on board within my business, um, they're financial, they've got their money ready to go, and they're looking for a good deal, you can imagine the negotiating power that my business partner, Damien, and I um, have when we're going to sit down with land developers, when we sit with builders, you know, as opposed to an individual who wants to build one single dwelling, you know, we can go on in, in the same sort of area and build 10 or 15 or 20 dwellings. So we get economies of scale that way. Um, in relation to getting deal access, Mike, that's probably the most important thing that we spend a lot of time on. Um, as bad as it sounds, in the development world, it really is a big boys club. And what I mean by that is it comes down to the people that you know, the connections that you have in relation to the deal access that you can get, whether you can get access to the opportunities early uh, you know, at a subsidized price, or are you coming in later like a retail investor once the properties hit the market on things like realestate.com and domain. So that's essentially how, how we work, mate. So if you didn't have access to, to, I guess, you know, as you say, keeping the margins, w would you be thinking that maybe established properties are better than new builds? Uh, for, for someone that, that, that doesn't have access to that, w w would that change your strategy or do you, do you fundamentally think new builds are a better investment because of the deductions and because of the, the, the less maintenance costs and that sort of thing? Yes and no. Um, I agree with what you said about the deductions and the less maintenance and the premium rents that you get. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, my genuine belief is you've got to invest in what works for you, right? Um, you know, if you do have surplus time and if you are you know, good with your hands and trades and all that sort of stuff, which I am not, then absolutely, mate. You, you, know, you can go and renovate property. But for me, it's, it's not investing like your typical retail investor where you just buy something and you hope like hell that you can make some money, right? Because sometimes you only find out five, six, seven, ten years down the track to find out that you bought a lemon. And so for me, you know, as long as you can add value to a property and generate equity, as opposed to sort of sitting on your hands and waiting, then, then that's definitely a good option. Um, the reality is a lot of my clients are simply time poor. You know, they, they know what they need to do. They just don't have the, the time, the skills, the experience, uh, or the industry contacts to bring everything together. And that's where I guess my business has really found its niche uh, in, in helping do that. Let's talk about that that instant equity. Uh, obviously, some of the the deals that you're getting are, are under market value, so that that's an obvious one there. Um, people that are buying established properties, I, I mean, there are buyers agents all over the place. Say, so you know, we we get off market deals, so there's instant equity and and positive cash flow because we're buying under market in high yielding areas. How, how how does how does your instant equity and positive cash flow sort of fit into your model there, Drew? Yeah, cool. Um, so I guess, Matt, you're right. It's, it's easy to come out with claims, oh, we buy under market value and we buy off market and we get positive, easy, easy statements to make. But I guess you've got to back it up by results and you've got to back it up by the facts. So essentially what, what we do is we look at, well, what's the acquisition cost of an investment? And we establish how exactly are you making your money going into a deal, right, as opposed to, you know, buying something under market value and then hoping like it's going to go up over time. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, where we're getting the best result, results at the moment, Mike, is in things like duplex development with mutual subdivisions. You know, So uh, a, a recent example, we help clients invest um, in a duplex, eight-bedroom, four-bathroom, double lock-up lock up garage home. The acquisition cost for the land was 186000 All up was about 700000 for the total purchase price. You know, eight-bed, four-bath, two-car. Now, based on comparable sales, not what's on realestate.com or what's on domain, um, hopefully, you and I know, and, and all your listeners know, that those figures there, uh, you know, as a mere indication, it doesn't give the true value of a property. But done, dusted um, sales through RP data have shown that each individual half, which is comparable, has come in between $425 to $450,000 per side. Done, dusted, and settled, right? So you can't make this stuff up. So we know that our clients are getting in for a total development cost of $700,000. We also know that based on today's comparables, right, not, not, not future projections, but today, each half is worth $425 to $450,000 per side. So my very nature, and this is what I work with all my clients, plan for the worst, hope for the best, let's use the $425 aside. So, you know, two duplex halves gives you an $850,000 gross realization on a $700,000 purchase price. So that's how we talk about buying under market value because essentially on gross numbers, you know, you're 150 grand under market. So when the property is complete, you then have the option. You could sell one, you could keep one, you could sell both, or in fact, you could keep both. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've just I'm just writing some some notes here. So I, I was just wondering, you know, I, I'm I'm trying to be a bit of devil's advocate here, Drew. It's it, it's it sounds pretty it sounds pretty fantastic on paper, but are there are there additional costs in in split, splitting the properties in in half, or is that all part of the, the that when you actually deliver that to the client, they can sell one half because they're they're, they're on their own title? Is, is is that all factored in? It is, yes, but you're right. There is absolutely is cost, and this is where people get it so wrong, Mike, unfortunately, is you know, cheap is not affordable, and cheap is cheap for a reason. And this is where I see people get so stuck because they go for the cheapest price properties with that little asterisk on the side, subject to. Now, you know, in normal construction, it's subject to landscaping, driveways, letterboxes, clotheslines, you name it. But when it comes to doing multi-property development, you've also got things like council contributions. You've got things like headworks charges. You've got things like subdivision costs. Right, so all of these absolutely need to be factored in. Um, the way that I structure my business is everything is fixed price t- turnkey. So there's no hidden cost surprises. There's no blowouts. Um, you know, because development is, is you know, it's a bit of a risk, and we need to talk about that. So. Um, I don't know. Did you want me to go through how we mitigate risk, or? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to know. So obviously, we've got to this magic 700k fully delivered figure. How much of that is exposed to things like rain delays, or or Section 94 contributions, or or you know issues issues with the builder incurring variations and that sort of thing? Awesome. Okay, cool. So those those are the risks. So I'll, I'll just start because there's three main key risks when you talk about any development strategy, from my perspective. The first one is the development risk. Now, when we talk about taking on these small developments, we are not doing what you call impact accessible developments, which means you know I'm not going into a, a, an estate trying to build up a multi-property dwelling. I'm not trying to build a high-rise. So the chances of it getting knocked back are pretty slim, right? We do what we call code accessible. It fits within the local environment plan. It fits within the development control plan. It fits within the local covenants that's been set out by the actual developer. We go so far as getting an independent town planning letter to say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, on lot 0152, it's permissible to build a multi-property dwelling, right? So we really try and mitigate the development risk on that front. The second one is the building risk, and I think that's what you were alluding to before. Now, the building risk is, you know, you hear horror stories all the time. Builders going broke, builders doing an inferior uh, product, you know, if they hit rock. So when we talk about the price, it's fixed price, all-inclusive, ready to rent. So literally, the tenant can walk there, turn the key and live there. Everything else is sorted out. Now, this is where I get approached, Mike, literally every second week by by smaller builders and nothing against them. Like I'm sure they do a really good job, but they wouldn't accept to work with me because the development terms that we dictate, um, if anything ever went wrong, would probably send their business bankrupt, right? So- because you're you're passing a lot of the risk onto onto the the builder, right? Because if they if they strike uh, rock and they incur additional costs in putting the the, the footings in, then you you're you've actually got a, a fixed price contract that specifies that they're wearing that, so they're taking that risk. Is that right? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, essentially, mate, this is the, the value in I guess um, our business is because we specialise in that, and it's all in contract terms. Like you said before, if anything was to go wrong at all. Mate, the builder is the one that's at risk, not our clients, right? So obviously anything can happen in building. You know, if, if um, you know, cyclone comes through and the place gets trashed, uh, you know, if they get the basic wrong, if they get the sun calculations wrong, there's a list of different things that could possibly go wrong. But again, the builder wears that risk. The most important and the third risk as well is the timing risk, right, which I think you were alluding to in your previous question, is if the builder is on a more profitable job elsewhere, do you think that your job is going to be a key focus for them? Probably not. So in the development terms, as we put in liquidated damages, which basically means as soon as the approvals are through council, they are contracted to start by a certain date, and they are also contracted to finish by a certain date. Now, if they are not, they then have to pay you the weekly rent or whatever that may be. Now, there's a couple of exceptions. You know, if, uh, you know, they call it an act of God occurs, which basically means if it buckets down with rain for a while, tradies can't get to site, builders can't get to site, you have to add on those rain delay days. Now, the only other real, um, you know, common sort of time delay is, is the Christmas shutdown period, you know, for, you know, seven, seven to 15 days. So those are really the, the, the time risks. Now, I guess the, the um, peace of mind for our clients is knowing that, hey, the total purchase price is 700 grand. That is including of all the construction costs. That's including all the Section 94 contributions, all your headworks charges, all of your subdivision fees as well. So you're not going to have any cost blowouts. You're not going to have any nasty surprises and you're not going to have any time blowouts either. And that's how we really earn our stripes, by making sure that we get development terms on a retail basis, 
which as a client of ours, obviously you can take advantage of in a big way. Yeah, look, and and I was going to ask you about. Well, yes, we could we could engage someone like yourself to to have a builder build on our behalf, or we could actually just go and say buy uh, a display home or something like that, right? But the 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 difference there is that the margin has has already gone. The, the, you, you're not able to get that that land at, at a lesser value because of the connections and and the builders um, essentially made their twenty percent or, or what have you and you're paying the paying that sort of premium. And I guess like where is the instant equity uh, in, in that transaction? I know I'm, I'm advocating for you now. I've swapped sides, but <laughs> am I on the right page with with what you would say there? Kind of, kind of. I mean, we, we basically get approached all the time by uh, builders to, to um, you know, sell their display homes, if you like, and, and I never take them on. And not to say that you can't make money out of them. I think in, in the decade that we've been doing this, I've heard of two people that have made money. But what, what you can remember is with display homes is builders really, you know, spruce them up enough to get them looking really, really good to draw on your emotions, right? They're very much, you know, at the beginning of an estate, come and check out a display. Oh, honey, I love that home. I love that home. And what they tend to do is cost plus and pricing, right? So you have a base price, and then all of a sudden you want to add the stone bench tops, you want the melee appliances, you want the ducted AC, and then all of a sudden what you thought was a relatively cheap build turns out to be an absolute fortune. Um, if you buy a display place, nine times out of ten, the, the builders will give you a very attractive rental return. They'll give you a high yield. You know, hey, buy this place for a million bucks, and we're going to give you a 9% net yield for two years. Challenge is, what happens after that two-year period with the cash flow? right? Challenges is what is that property actually worth in two years' time? Challenges, how do you actually get the finance for that to start with? Because you know that you're paying a premium because it is completely done to the hill to attract an emotional buyer. So nothing against the display homes. I'm sure you can make money. It's just for us, we're probably down more uh, in, in, in the, uh, the food chain, making sure that our clients are making wholesale funding, not coming in at the end and paying retail. We've talked about the instant equity. What, what about the positive cash flow in that particular scenario? So we've got these these places. Let, let's say that they're, they're worth four hundred and twenty-five per side. Um, you know, seven hundred k to get in for the whole thing. Um, you know, so so we've got you know somewhere around about one hundred fifty k worth of instant um, equity there. What what sort of rental figures do you typically see, or does that really depend a lot in the areas that you're that you're doing these deals? I, I presume you 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 must be confined to a, a fairly tight area to be able to have those relationships with with developers and and the builders not necessarily so we, we've got opportunities all up and down the eastern seaboard and um, the benefit of, of our business i guess as boutique as it is um, is we're not tied down to any particular developer vendor agent or geographic location and um, my, my business has a vested interest in the success of our clients because to be honest mike if, if i can help my clients make 100 150 200 grand uh, in their first opportunity I'd like to think that they don't have to look anywhere else to get their second, their third, their fourth, and their fifth. Um, so, so that's how we go about that. Um, in relation to cash flow, um, you know, it, it's going to come down to how much of a deposit you put down, right? Now, that deposit then, is it, is it a cash deposit? Is it an equity deposit? Um, but I always assume the worst case scenario, which worse isn't the right word, <laughs> the more conservative scenario, is if you're borrowing 100% of the money, right? It's 100% finance. Nine times out of 10, um, you know, these properties are, are positive cash flow before you do your tax. But always, after you get all the depreciation benefits, which, <laughs> which you know all about, um, you know, the properties are positive cash flow after tax. Um, where I like this as well is if a client's really struggling from a cash flow perspective, what's stopping them from selling one and using the sale proceeds to pay down the debt on the other? Right? That really boosts up your net cash flow. That, that is an interesting one. Is that something that your, your clients uh, do on a regular basis? My clients, it's kind of a mix, to be honest. Um, you know, I've got clients that are just sort of starting off, Mike, uh, through to clients that are worth, you know, 20, 30, 40 million bucks. And a lot of my clients that still have their own personal mortgage, um, you know, use this strategy to help pay off their debt. Uh, and in fact, I just did a, um, an interview with your investment property magazine, uh, you know, last week talking about this very thing. It's kind of funny where sometimes you need to go into further debt to get out of debt. Uh, and that's what, I'm, that's what I'm doing for myself personally now, where... Uh, you know, the last five years, um, you know, I've been rent investing, you know, living in, in Sydney in, in a, you know, quite an esteemed suburb. Uh, but in October of last year, I took the plunge and bought my dream house. So now I do have a personal mortgage. But what I'm doing now is I'm investing in duplex developments where at the end of them, I'm actually going to sell them, take profit off the table to help pay off my personal mortgage. So a lot of our clients do that where they realize, well, listen, if I can make, you know, 150,000 bucks, yes, I've got to pay agents commissions yes i've got to pay capital gains tax yes i've got to pay legal fees 
Um, but if I can net, you know, 80, 90, 100,000 bucks, then that's money that I haven't had to necessarily work for. Um, you know, because essentially every dollar you save, depending on your tax bracket, is every $2 earned. So a lot of my clients will either, you know, buy, develop, sell to pay down personal debt, or they'll buy, develop, and keep, use the equity to then leverage to go into your next investment. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, I want to ask you about, uh, I mean, I was hoping to go this whole interview without talking about, you know, cash flow versus um, capital growth. But w- when, when we, we look at this deal, the, the, obvious, the obvious advantageous aspects of it are the instant equity, right? You're, you're spending 700 grand at the end of the project, which, which has minimized risk. You've, you've got 850, so you've, you know, you've got 150 grand there. But if, if people are selling them, I'm, I'm wondering, is, is, is that part of their strategy or is that, uh, I guess, a, an implication that these aren't necessarily capital growth-based assets? So the real value is in that instant equity, but they're not necessarily a, a long-term buy-and-hold strategy? That's a very, very good question, mate, and something I'll, I'll explain because the answer is it depends on the market and it depends on what's your highest priority. Um, I'll use myself personally, if that's okay. So I, I've, got my, I've got four developments on the go at the moment, right? And my intention is to keep four rolling every single 12 months. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm funding four developments because for me, that will cost an arm and a leg and my after-tax cash flow won't allow that. What it does mean, though, is you know I've secured one with a small deposit, you know where I've only paid you know 10% on the land. Um, I've secured one where the plans are lodged in the council at the moment. One where it's under construction, and one I'm actually taking profit off the table. But if I use the one that I've secured with a small deposit, that that duplex is actually in Lismore. Now people ask me, Drew, why on earth would you buy in Lismore? Uh, and, and my response is, well, it's an opportunity I can make $185,000 with. Right now, nothing against Lismore. Uh, you know I've never been there. I don't really understand uh, you know all the drivers and the market dynamics. But for me, I generally, in my personal circumstances, don't think that it's a market that's going to perform extremely well in the longer term. So my intention with Lismore is to actually uh, develop that property because it's been over the 12 months, I get the full 50% capital gains tax exemption, and then to sell the property, take the sale proceeds, pay down some of my mortgage. By contrast, I've got an opportunity duplex that's under construction at the moment on the central coast, you know, just north of uh, Sydney. My intention there is to actually buy it, develop it, and I'm going to keep that property. The reason I'm going to keep that property is because I genuinely believe it's still going to be a big beneficiary of the ripple effect of what's happening in Sydney. Even though we know Sydney's pulled back, we know that Melbourne's pulled back, but as far as a longer-term buy-and-hold property, I'm more happy to keep my money on the Central Coast than I would in somewhere like Lismore. So same strategy, two different outcomes. That's really interesting, and and it begs the question for me: What do say capital growth based investors do in a market like we've been in for the last maybe twelve months, and we're currently in now? Presumably, you have to have a reasonable amount of patience to get any real, I guess, on paper gain or or equity. This is where the the power of this strategy really works, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I often get asked, oh, you know, Drew, is now a good time to buy in real estate? And, you know, and my response is, if your investment approach is the buy, hold, and pray approach, then you should be worried. Like, it's not my opinion anymore. Like, the city market's pulled back. The Melbourne market has pulled back. So if that is your strategy, it, it, it's a bit of a concern. Um, however, if you look for opportunities where you can get your acquisition costs right and you can look at comparable sales as they stand today, then obviously, in my opinion, that's a much better way to recycle your deposits and keep growing and moving your money forward. What about the areas that you're you're doing these deals in? Are, are they typically new subdivisions, which has you know the in, inherent supply risks, where uh, you know a farmer can be given a lump of cash by a developer to to sell a big parcel, and then suddenly you've got you know a thousand lots, or, or are you strategically looking for areas where there there might be a vacant block or or a knockdown situation? Yeah, good question. And, and the answer is both. So I think what you're referring to there is the two types of development. So there's what you call infill development, uh, which is you know existing dwellings around, knock down a house, build a duplex. And then there's also master plan development as well. So the infill stuff is pretty self-explanatory. You know, that's the ideal for me is you've got McMansion on one side, you know, vacant block, and then McMansion on the other, right? Comparable sales, comparable properties, lift up the value. That's the ideal scenario. Now, when you talk about master plan development, I think this is where your listeners will get a lot of value, is people assume that just because there's a lot of potential supply, that has a negative impact um, on on pricing. And in my opinion, it depends on which investment you look at. And I'll give you an example. Um, If uh, you're a son, your father's passed away, he's left you a sugarcane farm, and you want to become a developer overnight, 
you have no necessary vested interest in maintaining the integrity of an estate, maintaining prices. This is where sometimes people get stuck. Whereas if you're a blue chip developer, you know, someone that's publicly listed, you've got Mervac, Stockland, Lendlease, Sakasui House, people like that, they all have to report to shareholders, right? So they also have to report a profit. Now, what happens is, you know, let's just say that there's a 500 lot subdivision, right? Big, big, big subdivision. The developers don't launch all 500 deals at once. They do it in different stages. You know, so nine times out of 10, they'll launch stage one. Stage one will get sold out to your display home builders, right? Stage two, they'll then launch, you know, another 20 or 30 blocks. And let's say that that's 200,000. Once those are sold out, they'll then launch stage three at 220,000. Those get sold out, stage four, stage five, and so on and so forth. Now, they don't supply and, and, and bombard the market with stock at once for their interest as well, because oversupply puts down pressure on pricing and things aren't going to sell. So I think that's the biggest misconception. We coined that phrase, mechanical momentum. And that's how sometimes we get into areas well and truly before anybody else ever gets to see them. In fact, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, I won't tell you the exact estate because it's going through its DA now in Newcastle, but we've had our foot on all the medium density sites within that estate. It's going to be two, two and a half thousand lots over the next 10, 15 years. We've had our foot on all the medium density stuff in the first six stages of that estate, and we locked that down eight months ago. Right, okay. And this mechanical momentum, essentially you, you're actually riding that wave because you're getting in on the ground floor. Is that what you're saying? Essentially, yeah. I personally developed a property um, in, uh, in the Gold Coast in, in a suburb called Helensvale. Uh, at the time, the, the growth rate was just over 3 or 4%. You know, so when people looked at me going, oh, my God, why would you buy in a market which is only delivering 4%? But what happened is because we could get into stage two, we understand how these big publicly listed companies like to make money on their balance sheet. Right? Because remember, as, as they release each stage, their prices increase more and more. That's their equivalent of making instant equity, right? Because it hasn't cost them any more money, but they're getting an extra twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars per stage per lot. So for me, the stage price between when I got in, you know, until the fifth or sixth stage was seventy thousand dollars. I didn't do a single thing. It's the land price has gone up by seventy grand. That sounds fairly scientific when you think about uh, you know a developer like that that um, ha has the the patience and the expertise to firstly pick an area that has strong demand for for housing and also to to stage it and 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 have the plan and the patience to to ensure that they keep the prices high. But what about in these real greenfield areas where you've got multiple developers of different levels of experience, different lot sizes? Is is that a potential area where people can get typically into a bit of trouble? Big time, big time, big time, yeah. So just as mechanical momentum can work in a positive manner by getting um, the pricing increases per stage, it can work in the exact opposite way as well. Um, you know, So you don't have to be a rocket scientist. Jump on realestate.com, jump on domain, and you can see an absolute abundance of land for sale. Right, you really can. Uh, and that's where it's really important that you pick the right estates that have the right fundamentals in order to drive your growth moving forward. You know, you want to be in the estates that are very limited investors. You know, you want to be in the places where one out of every 10 blocks or one out of every, um, you know, 12 blocks will actually allow an investment property to be built. You want to be in an estate where they have very strict covenants, right? Making sure that you, at, you know, in three, four, five years' time, you drive past the, the estate it's not going to turn into a renter's ghetto, right? And I think that's what you're referring to, Mike, is, uh, you know, fly-by-night developers who literally just want to get the land off their balance sheets, make a quick buck, that's what you've got to be very cautious of because uh, that type of real estate I don't think is worth investing in. Yeah, that's that's interesting to to hear your thoughts on that because I think that a lot of people do get caught out in an area where there's a there's a massive supply coming on and and it, and it really it really stifles that capital growth potential. I'm I'm really interested in 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 something that I've I've seen you do a, a bit of a video on and and every year the the Fin Reviews Rich List comes out and the and the property people whether they be you know good technicians or the spruikers they they love to jump up and down and go look at all the property people that. That are, that are right up there, so property's the way to go. Now, your video, it, it takes a different sort of approach, but you reference people like Tim Gurner, who's gone from, I think it was $34,000 to whoever knows how many hundreds of millions, 300 million, I think thereabouts in 15 years. Harry Trigoboff has built his worth in 50 years. That sounds like a long time, but when you're talking in excess of a billion dollars, that's still an astronomical amount year on year. How, like, 
Property investing, yes, you've got the the, uh, the the buy and the hope capital growth method or hopefully you're sophisticated and you can pick those areas. But how, how are these property people getting that high up the tree? Is that is that something that you're tapping into with this manufactured equity idea? Kind of, mate. I mean, those two guys are my absolute heroes. <laughs> I take my hat off to them. Um, uh, especially Harry, I actually had breakfast next to him the other day. But I guess, mate, they've been doing it for a long time, and and their particular uh, business model, I guess, if you like, is in the unit development space. Um, so it's probably not manufactured equity as such. It's probably more instant equity generation. Um, they've obviously been able, very successful, um, you know, in their own rights, but they leverage a lot of people's money as well. So you know, what uh, Tim and what Harry do is completely, in my opinion, different style of development. Um, specifically because they, they deal in, in high-rise unit developments and, and obviously high-end unit developments as well. So I guess where they've sort of taught me what to do is, is not buy something and then hope they're going to make money over time, is they know they're making money the day that they develop it. And that's what I've really taken out of them, is saying, okay, well, listen, I know that the end product is going to retail for 425000 a side. I know the end product is going to retail for 450000 a side. So what do I need to build it for in order to get my minimum equity I need to make it worth my while? Does that make sense? Yeah, it sounds like a way more scientific approach to property investing than than what you would you would think about typically. I mean, yes, you can you can model your average seven percent gross or look at historical averages, but if you're talking about a project from start to finish, and you know you you start with your deposit and you end with your your total in construction costs, and then you've got this this asset where you've got comparable sales. I mean, for, for a numbers person like me, it sounds pretty attractive. Well, it is, mate. And, and the reality is property is very expensive to get into. Uh, you know, you've got to pay, uh, you know, stamp duty, you've got to pay legal fees, you've got to pay a deposit. You know, if, if you're dealing with a company like mine, you've got to pay me. So you need to factor that in. Um, and then obviously when it comes to selling property, it's just as expensive as well. You know, you've got to pay an agent to sell the thing, you've got legal fees, you've got capital gains tax. Um, so for me, it's really important you understand uh, exactly how you're making your money before you go into a development, um, as opposed to leaving it by chance and uh, on, on factors that you can't necessarily control. I'd love you to talk to us about that just based on one of those sort of duplex case studies and, and perhaps you can tie it into um, the information I've, I've come across on your website where you've got the three sort of main products. Um, you sort of referenced investors at different levels with different capacities. Can you sort of give us a bit of a, an idea of the typical investor that would go down those, those different models that you offer? Yeah, sure thing. So my, my core business, I guess, is in the automatic equity program. Uh, that's where we're getting the, the most results, which is most affordable to, to, to everyone. Uh, you know, that's where you start talking about doing, uh, you know, duplex development with subdivisions, maybe a triplex here and there. So that's our core focus. Now, um, what was happening, Mike, is, you know, unfortunately, the hardest part of my job is saying, hey, Jack and Jill, listen, you're a lovely couple. I really want to help you, but you don't qualify to afford these types of opportunities. And, and I guess that's where I genuinely believe in my business, where if I can't help you, and if I can't add substantial value, I don't want to take your money off you, right? It's, it's not the right thing to do. So what was happening is people saying, Drew, listen, we love your value proposition. We love your good business. Listen, what if we could, can, is there any way that we could work with you? And, and we developed a program where, you know, if you can't afford to get into instant equity opportunities via duplexes, you know, 700 to 900,000, you can then get into, you know, smaller projects to, as a stepping stone to get into bigger and better ones. You know, so for example, now, you know, we've got housing opportunities where the purchase price is as little as 475,000, but comparable sales are at 550,000. So essentially, I've built these three different programs um, to make sure that whatever level of investing you're at, you know, you can take advantage of our business. The equity developer model uh, is, is for somebody that's done, you know, two, three, four developments uh, and they want to get into bigger and better projects. So I, essentially I've built my business if you have the same investment psychology, if you have the same realistic mindset and if you have the finance uh, capacity to take advantage of our deals, we'd obviously love to work with you. Now, when you look at the housing one, for example, and, and and the reason why I picked that is I guess your average property investor is still only owning one property by a, a sizable margin. So that that's maybe something that fits more with the, the general listener. You, you, you talked about these housing um, packages. They're sort of, uh, you know, worth 475K with comparables at 50. So you've got a 75K of instant equity. If we're selling this and we've got our, uh, our costs on, on top of that, I'm guessing you know agents are, are charging two percent or something like that. I'm a little bit out of the loop with the, the up to date prices, but two or three. 
Yeah, so you might, you know, if you take away legals and that sort of thing, are we making sort of maybe 50 grand um, net over the course of a project and that's over maybe sort of like a four or five month period so feasibly you could do it twice in a year and make 100 grand? Are those those numbers sound about right? No, not really, mate. And, and, and what I mean by not really is at the lower end of that sort of spectrum, mate, it's hard to justify buying something, uh, you know, paying holding costs and then selling it because at the end of the day, Mate, you're right. You've got to pay stamp duty. You've got to pay interest interest costs throughout construction. You've got to pay an agent to sell the property, and then you've got to pay potentially a bit of capital gains tax. If you're doing it within a 12 month period, you know you're up for the full capital gain added to your assessable income. So, um, essentially, for me, the way we look at the equity builder program is that you're buying in with a 50 to 60 to 70 thousand dollar equity advantage straight away. Right now, um, hopefully, you know and your listeners know there's there's really only two things from a high level perspective that will prevent you from borrowing more money and growing your portfolio. It's either your borrowing capacity, you know, your household income versus your household expenses, um, or it's your buying power, which is, you know, the, the level of cash you have, the level of equity you have, or even access to somebody else's equity, uh, you know, whether it's your parents or, or, or doing a joint venture. So in the equity builder program, it's not necessarily saying, hey, buy, develop, sell, and um, because your profits essentially can get eaten up in, in, in costs and expenses. Right. What you'll notice as well is I haven't told you, hey, Mike, listen, um, it's in an area of 7 to, to 15%. You know, so I reckon you're going to get 15% growth on top of that. Right. Uh, again, this is my view. I don't really care who you are. I don't think you can predict what growth is going to be. And if we look at history, past performance is no indication of future performance. So I look at it on a worst-case scenario. We pay 475 for it today. Based on uh, an appraisals and sales, it's around 550 You know, You're starting with a 75 grand equity advantage straight away. Whether you sell it or you, you get it refinanced at the end is going to determine or depend, sorry, on your individual circumstances. Yeah, okay. That, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I guess, um, you know, the, the advantage of the duplex one is that you can sell down half or you can do the whole thing and, and maybe there's, there's, a, there's a, I guess, a little bit better leverage in that, something like that. But with the house projects, you know, ideally you would be doing those in an area where you get that capital growth, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, the house, the way I look at it, mate, is, uh, you know, how long does it take you to save 75 grand? Now, especially when you're first sort of starting off, and that's that's what I say to my clients is the hardest part of getting started is getting your first one or two properties because you have to slave your way for your deposits, right? You know, every every dollar saved is every two dollars earned, depending on your income. So for me, it's it's a way of going. Well, listen, if I don't have the money to get into a duplex, if I don't have you know seventy five to one hundred and forty thousand dollars to put down as a deposit, if I've only got you know forty five or fifty five or sixty, then this is a really good way to essentially. Uh, grow your equity position to leverage into your next investment. I want to talk to you about the finance on these sorts of projects. So um, perhaps you can sort of speak to us about the difference between a a, a duplex or a house. Are are these construction loans or or how does it work in terms of the deposit on the land and are you paying interest from the start of the construction or is it from the beginning? How, How does that all work? Yeah, sure. There's about six questions in your one question, so I'll try and tackle them. I'm famous for that, mate. So you can just cherry pick whichever ones you like. Sure, sure. Um, so in relation to finance, the thing I love about the strategy, if the land is registered, right, here's the big caveat, um, is everything that you do is subject to finance. Meaning if you don't get a satisfactory finance approval, you do not have to proceed with the deal and you get all of your money back, right? So essentially, if you don't know with absolute certainty that you can afford the property, that the bank's going to lend you the money, that the valuations come in on purchase price or above, you can walk away, tear up the contracts and, and, and walk away, right? So that is a huge, huge advantage, which I love. Now, just to contradict myself, by contrast, if you recall that example I spoke to you about that I've purchased in Lismore, where I put down a small deposit, you know, 10% deposit on the land, I there have actually gone unconditional on the purchase, right, without having a formal finance approval in place, right? Now, most finance, formal finance approvals will only be valid for a period of you know, 60 to 90 days, maybe 120 if you're lucky. So essentially, if you're looking at securing land where you're building up a development pipeline, um, you know, almost land banking if you like, there is an element of risk there. You need to know with absolute certainty that you have the ability to settle that property down the track. But let's assume that everything's all okay. Um, when you start paying interest is when you physically settle the property, right? The land settles. So if you look at the du- duplex example I explained before, the land component of that is only 186000 right? So when you settle the land, that's what you're going to start paying interest on. Now, your plans then get lodged into council. And depending on the council, uh, with the duplex, it's anywhere from four to six months in council. If it's a house, it's anywhere from four to six weeks in council. So let's assume it's a duplex and you've got six months in council. 
you essentially are paying interest on 186000 for six months. Now, when the plans come out of council, they get approved, and you've got your what you call authority to commence construction. You get that letter you send to the builder. They then get to site, and they'll pour the slab, first of all. And the slab may cost 100000 bucks. They will send you a progress claim form that you need to sign off and send back to the bank for them to then release an extra hundred grand. So your loan now isn't 186,000, it's now 286,000, right? The next thing that happens is you put the frame on and the roof on, you then do the internals, you then get to practical completion, you then get to handover. There's normally about five or six different progress payments, but only at the very end will your loan be fully drawn out at 700,000. Does that make sense? Yeah, exactly. And you're, and you're factoring in those costs. When you talk about the 700K example, that, you, that that's basically you're factoring in those, those staged interest charges throughout the different milestones of the project? The 700,000, Mike, is based purely on the purchase price and all the hard costs. Um, I can't work out exactly what an interest cost is going to be because sometimes my client, uh, other clients are paid cash for property. Sometimes I put down a 20% deposit. Sometimes clients put down a 90% deposit. So before a client takes on a development, that's absolutely what we do personally to make sure that they don't overextend themselves, uh, to make sure that they do have the cash flow to fund the interest in construction because that's one of the, you know, people see it as a downside. I see it as a positive. Um, is you do have an interest component whilst the property is under construction without any rent coming in. So that's something that you absolutely need to talk about. Um, the, the benefit, though, is I guess you only pay stamp duty on the land component of the development, right? Not on the total purchase price. So, you know, in, in that duplex example, you know, clients actually secured that when the, uh, the New South Wales government grant was on. I don't know if you remember that, a $5,000 grant. So, so, so the stamp duty they paid on $186,000 was only $238. Phenomenal. I pay like close to no stamp duty. If you were to do that same deal now, it'd probably cost you six or seven grand in stamp duty. Whereas if it was the total purchase price, you're talking, you know, high high twenty thousands. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah. It's something that you definitely need to talk about, or that I talk about. It's going okay for the period of the next six months or twelve months, whatever it may be. You need to be comfortable to know that you can afford the interest whilst the property is getting built. Yeah, and as you say, your your investors are at different stages. Some of them, um, and good luck to them, are able to do it without finance. But the ones that are, you you model that into the project, and you you make sure that all those costs are managed, and 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 pre pre pre, I guess, pulling the trigger that the costs are completely understood. Yeah, hundred percent, mate. It's worth it's worth spending time, and as this is my business motto, it's plan for the worst, but hope for the best, right? You know, we need to know if anything should pop up because let's face it, life happens that you have adequate buffers in place, you know, both personal buffers and property buffers, as well as adequate cash flow, um, you know, in order to see these projects through. Now, you're, the market that we're in at the moment, obviously, your 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 business is is, is going uh, going gangbusters. Um, you're, you're doing a lot of projects, both personally and and professionally. Is it is it a market that is more advantageous to you at the moment because it is fairly flat? I mean, does that help you to secure land under under comparables? You know, on top of the connections that you have, and and if we were in a market that was sort of running at you know. 10 or 15% year on year capital growth, would that make it more of a challenge for you to do what you do and, and in turn your clients to get those results? Definitely. Yeah, it does have an impact, mate. Um, so uh, to answer your question, it really comes down to your acquisition costs of what you can afford to secure a piece of real estate for. Uh, I'll give you an example. So, uh, you know, when I first started doing this in 2011, um, you know, the, the market was a little bit tougher then. Interest rates were, what, 6 7%. Um, and developers basically would be lining up to, to get our business. You know, we would sort of say, hey, Mr. Developer, um, I see you've got 10 blocks of land for sale uh, at 300 grand a block, uh, as an example. Um, you know, we'll, we'll take all 10, but we're not going to pay you 300 grand a block. We're going to pay you 270, right? Developer's happy. He gets to sell all 10 blocks at once. Uh, our clients are happy. They get a 30 grand discount on the way into a deal. And obviously, my business is happy because we get to project manage 10 developments. Win, 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 right? Um, what happened then when the markets start going crazy, right? like what's happened in Sydney in the last five or six years, same conversation with Mr. Developer. Hey, Mr. Developer, you've got 10 blocks of land for sale, 300 grand a pop. He's like, yeah, Drew, we do. You better get in, you better you know, secure them now, otherwise they'll all sell out over the weekend. You know, So the days of trying to negotiate bulk discounts when the markets are hot is really, really tough. But what's starting to happen now, and this is where uh, hopefully this doesn't come across the wrong way, where it gets harder and harder for everybody else is where we do our best work, right? Because we're able to negotiate a lot more based on creating a win-win scenario. 
And that was my next question: is is what you do something that can feasibly be done in a in a way that makes money for your average investor? Can they feasibly negotiate the good deals with the builders, or and you know get getting these blocks under under market, or or is it just really another example of where you when you've got the capacity, and you've got the le- the leverage, as you talk about the richer getting richer quicker by pooling the resources? It's like you're operating like a trigger buff, for example. Mate, I don't want to say it's not possible because anything's possible, right? Um, but it would definitely be a lot harder to go and negotiate on your own as an individual, um, especially if you're talking about one project here, one project there. So, um, you know, as I said to you before, the way that I built my business is creating win-win scenarios in which our biggest beneficiary is, of course, our clients. So, you know, one person going in to negotiate trade rates and bulk rates and construction costs, you know, it's, it's going to be pretty tough, right? But that's what my business does, especially where – you know, we, we do are starting now to do a certain level of volume where we can get those economies of scale, which brings the pricing right down. We have got a track record now with particular developers. You know, when we say, hey, we're good for 10 blocks at 270, you know, our, our, our word is our bond and, and we do deliver. And that's where, you know, as opposed to developers going to, uh, you know, traditional real estate agents or, or, or realestate.com, you know, we get the phone call, they don't, purely based on past track record and they know that we can deliver. Wow, nice work if you can get it, Drew. What about um, if people are wanting to get in, in touch with you, uh, what's the best way to do that and how can they follow to, to get some more uh, info on, on what you do? Yeah, well, I'd love it if, if people could get in touch. Um, if you just go to our website, which is www.kaifuproperty.com.au, uh, all the links to all of our different programs are there as well as all our contact details. Perfect. Now, you've shared quite a lot of gold over the last uh, 50-odd minutes, but if I can try and pin you down to one piece of advice that you would impart to property investors, if you could tell, if you could tell them one thing to help them on their journey to, to creating the financial freedom or whatever their goals are, what would that be? That's hard in one sentence. Uh, my advice would be this, is find somebody that's done what you've already want to do and go and mentor them, go and follow them. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that will give you advice, but it could be biased. Um, make sure you do somebody that's already done, follow someone that's already done what you wanted to do and uh, let them help you. Beautiful. That's very succinct. I, I love it. And uh, and thank you very much for, for all of the gold today, uh, Drew. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming on board. No worries as well. Thanks. Uh, good to chat to you, Mike. We'll catch up soon. Cheers. Mm-hmm.